Amen. As you're standing, please take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What a great message we've been singing this morning, reading and praying, and now hopefully we will continue in the preaching and the receiving of God's Word. First Thessalonians chapter 4, and we will read verses 6 through 8. I'm going to back up to verse 1. Just looking at that, that's 6 through 8 is our, uh, what we will be talking about today, but you, you really will lack context unless we back up and read the whole thing. So back up to verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, so that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You as our Father that we can come before You. We thank You that everything that we have been doing, hopefully, at least this is the design that it's been done in Your name and for Your glory. We pray now that you would enable us to see what is truth from your word. Lord, as, as, as a guide, I know that I can walk through these verses and I can share descriptions and I can share explanation and even illustration. But Father, only you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, who is given to us, that's what this, this passage says, you have given your Holy Spirit to us. Only you can show us this word, this book that you have written to us. God, there are, there, are, there are people who need to change, and I'm not talking about all of us. All of us need to change today, but some need to hear this and internalize the message and go deep and do a diagnosis from your word and by your spirit and respond to the truth that's in your book. God, you want us to be pure. You want us to be holy, whatever age we represent in this room and, and, and watching. 
in whatever venue, live stream, in this church and at home. And so I pray in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, that you would enable us to do this today. God, help me. Help me, please, to share what I share with clarity, with the appropriate humility and yet boldness, and with the kind of appropriateness that is needed. So, Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for um, the ones who are not here uh, today. This is our Labor Day weekend, and we know that many are traveling, and we pray that you would grant them traveling mercies uh, as they're away and bring them back safely to us when they return. And so we thank you and praise you that we can study this passage now together. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Bible is very clear that the church today around the world is living in increasingly difficult days. Now, what's interesting is that even though I truly believe, people have asked me this over and over again, particularly in in our culture, in our country, the things that are going on, but as I step back and I look at all that is going on in all of the world, they will say, Pastor, do you think it's the last days? And I say, absolutely, without question, yes. Now, I mean two things by this. I mean that we have been living in the last days since the New Testament. There is that kind of immediacy, listen to me, immediacy that we need to to feel deep down in our soul about the Lord Jesus. He could come at any time. And yet I truly believe that things are coming together in such a way that these could very well be the last days for us, which in fact even more increases our sense of of urgency. But, but think with me. According to this verse, the, the church was birthed in one of the most brutal, immoral, godless. Now, I, I have that in my notes, but I've got little g. Okay? They had plenty of gods, all right? But they were essentially godless idol worshipers, and they were perverse in their times. This was one of the, the, the times that was one of the most immoral and perverse ever to exist. And since that time, in fact, we can go back to the beginning of time, those who were of the evil one have hated those of us who seek to follow the righteous one. Now, I, I don't want to just put into your mind simply an us and a and a them kind of situation. But even in the New Testament, the book of 1 John, that's what we're studying in in our ABF class, we have a reference all the way back to the beginning. And we as Christians are told that we should not be like Cain. Now, we don't get this when we go back to the book of Genesis and read about Cain and Abel, but we have this interpretation overlapped on that story, and we see that he was obviously of the evil one. He murdered his brother Abel, and 
Why did he murder him, it says? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. And so it is absolutely right. It is safe to say that the hatred that the unrighteous, the wicked have for those who are pursuing righteous, it is safe to say that it goes back all the way to the beginning. Paul did his best to prepare the church for this. I, I, I kind of wonder. We have examples of Paul's sermons in the book of Acts. And every once in a while, I'll just go back and read those sermons. They are so rich and full, and they instruct me in some of the key points that we always ought to be teaching and preaching. But, but I love this because after one of his missionary journeys, get a picture of this. This is, this is brand new church stuff, just like in First. Thessalonians. And so he goes back through, he revisits some of the churches that were brought to saving faith in Christ, established churches, and he strengthened, it says, the disciples. And how did he strengthen them? By giving them some funny stories, by giving them some things that would be, quote, relevant to the culture of the day. Well, now this was relevant to the culture of the day because he said, look, guys, you are going to experience, as you continue in the faith, you're going to experience not just a few, but many tribulations before you enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've thought a lot about this. Janet and I were talking about this when we were walking the other day. In our nation, we have been spared largely this kind of many tribulations. Our tribulations come in, in little spikes, but it seems like that in, the, in, in recent days they've been spiking a little bit more and a little bit more. Could there come a time when it has increased? This is one of the most persecuted times, referring back to what I just said a few moments ago, for Christians to be alive, one of the most dangerous times because of the persecution going on. So the Apostle Paul didn't just do it for the early church we see here in Acts chapter 14. He did it for the church at Thessalonica. Look at this. Here he is in chapter 3 coming up to the, the visit of Timothy. Timothy had not yet returned. Now he had by the time of the writing, but he was looking forward to, to Timothy coming back because he wanted to know in the face of all these afflictions that they had stood fast, that they had not allowed themselves to be moved. Now, let me say this, and out of this verse, if you and I are true believers, let's just start right where we are right now. And if you and I are, are truly out of a life that's been we have been born again. This is not something that is just put onto us, some legalistic kind of a list that we have, but this is the stuff of which is born of the Holy Spirit as He gives us the new birth. This is the fruit that we are to bear. And so, if you are seeking to be, as Paul says to the church at Philippi, blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a, look at this, crooked and twisted generation. Now, without casting too much dispersion, how many of you feel that you and I right now are living in the midst of a twisted 
and crooked generation. Do you, do you feel that? Do you feel it? Every time you turn on the TV, I'm kind of thankful for times when my TV is out on the blink, when I can't turn it on. And, and you know, the news is just stuff that's happening, but before long, either a commercial or an advertisement or whatever the case may be, you can't even open a magazine hardly without there being evidence of a twisted and, and, and crooked generation. But now look at what he says. Here's what he says about you. This is not abstract. This is stuff, and it doesn't matter what age you are. He says this about you. If you're trying to live for Christ, you're going to shine like a light. If you're holding fast to the Word of life, you're going to shine like a light. Now, what's that going to do? It's going to do two things. One of two things it's going to do, all right? It's either as you shine like a light, you've got to realize as you are going about your daily life, whether it's as a student or in your workplace or wherever you are, and you're shining like a light, that means you're going to be different than the darkness around you, and there are going to be some people who will be attracted to the light. The Lord has already been dealing with them, you see. They're going to be looking at you, and a lot of times you won't even know that they're looking at you. By the way, in light of what we're talking about today, this might be a boyfriend or a girlfriend for some of you, or a best friend or a husband or a wife. It could be any number of people, and they're they're looking at you, and they're wondering, why is it that this person doesn't respond like the world does to everything that is going on? They They just don't get... You know, they just don't get rattled by certain things that are, that are going on around them, at least all that. And if they do, they, they come and ask my forgiveness, and I say, forgiveness for what? You've been around people like that, haven't you? And they're going to wonder, well, what, makes, what makes him, what makes her tick? It's that light that is shining, and you're going to have an opportunity to share the reason for the hope that is within you. It's not my light, you're going to say to them. It is the light of the Savior of the world. It's Jesus Christ. And that person's going to come to the light. However, those kinds of people around you are in the minority. Do you know what it's going to be like if you live like a light and the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The same passage. What does light do? Uh, when, when, when you're in the darkness and, and you all of a sudden there's a 800 lumen flashlight that hits you in the eyes. It stabs you. And it reveals there is nothing like getting up from a good night's sleep, stumbling into the bathroom, turning on the light, and after the light stabs your eyes and you look in the mirror and it exposes the reality. (laughs) Ah, man, oh, I am a mess. So wonder what a good night's sleep will do for you in that case. Without you even saying a thing, people will feel exposed by your righteousness, which shines as a light. 
And they're not going to like it, and they're going to blame you. It's not going to be a stabbing in the eyes. It's going to be a stabbing in the heart. And guess what? Just like Jesus exposed unrighteousness in the midst of his crooked and twisted generation, when you expose that, just like they did with Jesus, they will hate you. Here's what we've been studying. Many of you are new. Some of you are new. And so when we go back and look at 1 Thessalonians, a a great summary verse is chapter 1 and verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. We saw last week, you are seeking to do God's will. Not perfection, but progression, all right? You're seeking to grow in this biblical word called sanctification. That's the word Paul uses here. We talked about that last week. Sanctification means being set apart. That you and I, if we're Christians and we're lights in a dark world, we're being progressively set apart to God and set apart from the world. That's what you are. Last week, we also saw this. You are learning. Now, I, I just… Maybe there's one who would say it, but I, I need to sit down and talk to you about your understanding of spiritual things if you would say this. You are learning to control your own body. Now, that can mean a hundred different things. And you will think of some things according to the individuals sitting out there, but the thing that Paul is talking about, he's talking about in terms of your purity. You are learning, someone said in our ABF class, and I don't have it written down on my slides, I wish I did, I'll just steal it from her. But you're learning to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ found in His Word. When it says you're learning how to control your own body, he adds something from last week. How do you control your own body? No matter what, no matter what it is, but particularly in, the, in terms of sexual morality and immorality, it says in holiness and honor. I like that word. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments. Not, and here he gives the, the, the stark contrast, not in the passion of lust like unsaved people do. There is a marked distinction in Paul's mind. I just, I don't know that the church in America and maybe throughout the world has that, that distinction. There are people of God who are seeking progressively to control their bodies in holiness and honor and not in the passion of lust. He says this as unsaved. He calls them Gentiles. That's everyone else in that twisted and crooked world, and there is a sharp distinction. I I was studying this in along about Thursday and just meditating on that for for myself. And, you you know, when, when you're studying the Word, do you ever have in your, and I hope everybody has a quiet time, If you only devote five minutes a day to reading this book and asking the Holy Spirit to open it to you, it is so so rich. I I sit down with my little binder, and I'll fill up a couple of sheets of just things that come to me. And I was studying the other day, 
And why in the world I would think of an old Methodist hymn? Why not a Baptist hymn? But I, I was thinking about the truth, the reality that Charles Wesley, and by the way, it's just, it's a Christian hymn. When he says in one of his verses, and, and you have the working of God and, and the working in justification and the working of God in sanctification. Just this one phrase, let me share with you. It, it might not mean anything to you. Boy, it meant a lot to me. He, God, breaks the power of canceled sin. You see, Christian, if you and I are in Christ, we're not working for our salvation. Do you know what? Every sin that you've ever sinned and will sin has been canceled by the cross. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot earn your approval by God. But here's what he's doing in your life. And this is what we're studying about sexual purity. We're studying about him progressively in your life, students, in your life. I don't care if you're 14 or 84. He is in all areas, but in this area, he is breaking the power of canceled sin. And it says he's setting the prisoners free. And I said, thank you, Lord, that you are doing that in my life. You've done it. You're doing it. Let's move on. Verse 6, that's the introduction. You all know I always take a long time to do an introduction. <sighs> now, finally, he's at verse 6. I find this to be absolutely so interesting. I didn't say stunning. Interesting. Stunning is when it's a spiritual truth. But there is just such a parallel. Be advised. Here's what I've got. God is the original avenger in the matter of impurity. Now, he's called the avenger before, by the way, in all areas and particularly in this area, we... we Harken back to Romans where Paul says, do not take your own vengeance. Just leave room for the vengeance of God because he says, I will avenge. But I, I just picked up on this, and you obviously know where I'm going with this. Capital A, because he's God. He is the original avenger. Now, how many of you have heard of the Marvel universe in which the Avengers exist. Oh, come on. Play with me for a minute. Now, I want to say to you, some of you at home who are listening, that is imaginary, okay? All those Avengers are posers. They're wannabes. But, I, but I, I was thinking about this. I think that there is an element. Here it says in verse 6 that we need to be advised that if let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. What matter? In the matter of impurity, immorality. And then he adds this as a support, as an encouragement, because the Lord is an avenger. Now, there are some translations, you may be using one that puts that in a verbal form. The Lord avenges. And it, it, it may be, it, it's true. 
But I don't think it has the, the clout of what it says. He is the avenger. That's a noun. In these matters. Let me ask you, for those of you who understand, does everybody know who the Hulk is? My personal favorite. I know Tony Stark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Iron Man, he kind of won the day, but it was the Hulk that set him up, okay? How many of you would like the Hulk after you? Now, I've watched most of the Avengers, I have to confess. And I think one of my favorite parts is when Loki, did anybody else see this? Okay, okay, you're with me. Loki, I, I think of, okay, th this, this is the way we are. I'm, I'm a god. <laughs> and uh, the Hulk just looks at him, picks him up and slams him and breaks up, <laughs> throws him aside and says, puny god. And if you're afraid of the Hulk... I, listen, I'm trying to impress something on you that is not extra-biblical. This is not one of those things where a preacher gets up and tries to beat you over the head with the Bible. It says that he takes this kind of sin, sexual sin, seriously. And there are a couple of reasons for it. Proverbs speaks of one. You know, read the book of Proverbs sometime. In fact, the Old Testament is really PG-13 in many places and R in some. There's some of you in this room that right now, some of you listening at home, you really think you're getting away. Later on, it says you're, you're not disregarding man in this. You're disregarding God. Don't transgress wrong your brother in this matter. Sexual immorality, impurity, hurts you, okay? For those in this room, I'm not going to get it a lot into this, but long after whatever happens, and I'm talking about everything from images to action. Okay, are you following me? And even if you're a believer, long after you've put those things aside and you're seeking victory, there are very few things that leave a scar like a burn. God uses those. We know all of that. Those permanent scars, but the scar will remain. Why? Because God has designed and determined. This is from last week. This is from uh, forever. We go back to the Garden of Eden. God created it. God designed it. God determines the place where intimacy, physical intimacy is to be enjoyed. Marriage between a man and a woman. And that's why I said I would come back to the word honor. A minute ago, here it is. 
Hebrews 13, 4, let, a ma let marriage be held in honor among you all. And I, I, you know, I just, that, that word, in honor, we, we want to honor one another. You're not just honoring yourself, you're honoring that other person as well. When you say, no, God designed physical intimacy to be done in the context of marriage. And here's what he said, let the marriage be, bed be undefiled, for God will judge. Here he is, the avenger, the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, let, let me expand it with two illustrations. I just want you to see how serious God is about that, about this. Is this true just for individuals, Christians, or is this true for all men everywhere? What do you think? It really is. And I think sometimes we've compartmentalized it. And we don't realize that in the Scripture we see the timeless truth that Paul is trying to get across to the Thessalonians that God has dealt with entire societies cultures, nation states, if you will. And let, let, me, let me give you two pictures of this, all right? I'm going to go back and we're going to look not, not at this. By the way, this is one of these passages that is PG-13 at a minimum and R-rated. Uh, parents, read this uh, well. Look over it first yourselves and then you can, uh, you, you can paraphrase for your kids. I, I'm serious until they get old enough to, to really be reading these things. And here, here is what God told his people. And he meant it for, for the nations because he's going to illustrate something about the nations that he held accountable. Look at this. You shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. The context of Leviticus 18 is impurity, sexual immorality. And then he says, let's go back. I, I did, I double-clicked that. Okay, let, let me go, do this first. You shall not do as they did in the land of Canaan. Okay, that's what he's charging. Put that in front of the other one. All right? Are you with me? Okay. To which I'm bringing you. God said, I'm going to give a real, I'm going to be really merciful to the nations. I'm going to give them 400 years to get their act together and repent and turn to me. That goes back to Genesis 15, 16. So he's bringing his people into the land of Canaan. And he says, don't walk in their statutes. You follow my rules and my statutes and walk in them. Why? Because I'm your Lord and God. They're not just the God, I'm your God. There's a personal relationship and it grows out of that. Now, let's go to Leviticus 18. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules. Remember, his commands are for your good. And do none of these abominations, now this is a part, and it, this is so visual, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. And when you read Leviticus 18, all of it? If someone invents a law that says any one of those prohibitions that go against his, God's prohibitions, if someone makes a law that it's okay 
it's, it's not okay. And he said to his people, if you fall into this, I'm going to vomit you out like I vomited out the nations before. That is graphic. In other words, what made God sick to his stomach about the nations in Canaan? It makes him sick to his stomach that the people of God would do the same thing. Second illustration. Is that, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. You, you go home and study that for yourself. And this is, uh, this is huge. Genesis 19:13. Okay, I've got this right. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. What's going on there? Anybody know? You remember? Oh, God has sent a couple of his angels to Sodom. And he's saying, it stinks. It stinks to high heaven. I'm going to destroy it. This is not capricious. This is not willy-nilly. This is something that God has been patient, and he has finally reached his limit. And he says, I'm going to destroy it. Why? Why? And there's a whole big dialogue between God and Abraham in this. But here is the reason. We have to jump all the way for an explanation, a commentary to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. Now, I would ask you to just read this. This is from, this is about Israel, but does it have implications for us today? So God was warning his people. He's saying, you're worse than Sodom. You're worse than Sodom. And by the way, this is another passage. If you read the whole passage, it's PG-13 or R, really. Behold, this was the guilt. And he mentions several things of, of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. That's where it all starts. Excess of food. By the way, I just ask you, does this remind you of any particular nation, state, or whatever geopolitical power that is in existence today. Prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty. Now, he adds another thing to this. Watch this. And did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. That abomination should be singular. I don't know how the plural got in there. He saw an abomination added to these others. Did, did this abomination, this it, grow out of those others? I have a suspicion that it did. You know why Sodom was destroyed. One of the most fascinating things that I came across in the last two weeks in this study was a, a, a very in-depth study by an English scholar. Now, this guy was not a Christian. He was totally secular. His name was J.D. Unwin. This was published in the 1930s. Unwin was a social anthropologist. And the research that he did would, would be it would take up seven volumes, but he boiled it down to one volume. 
what he was trying to do, he studied 86 different cultures, nations, societies. He was trying to determine what were the common factors in the societies that fell, that collapsed, or that were taken over. By the way, of these 86, only three or four continued at a level of prospering. And that's what he did. He built all of this. I won't go into all of the, 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 the models, but basically he, he wanted to determine how did a, a, a nation, state, whatever, the culture remain flourishing, strong, or how did it become weak, dead, that was his word, inert, so that it collapsed or was taken over. And the only common things, now get this, this is a secular guy. The only common things he found were when they had restrictions on two things, premarital relationships, sexual relationships, and relationships within marriage. And where a culture had restrictions that held to purity and abstinence before marriage and in marriage, I'm talking about with outside people, a culture remained strong. No wonder there were only three or four. And when a culture began to go down in a spiral into fewer restraints and cast off all of the restraints so that they had sexual freedom before marriage and in marriage within three generations. This is a study from a secular guy within three generations that culture either collapsed on its own or was taken over. Here, here's the interesting part. I know your minds are going a lot of different places with this. That may be for another discussion, but here is the interesting thing. He got to the end, and he couldn't make a conclusion. He said, I, I see the statistics. I see the reality. I've studied them, and this is true, but I have no earthly idea why. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but we know. Why? Turn with me very quickly to Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to read this. You see, we know that there's something that comes before the freedom from restraints that God gives to His people. Romans chapter 1, verses 23, if you don't choose to read there, uh, turn there, then just listen as I read this. Here's, here's God's analysis, his diagnosis. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up. You see, it was the going away from God and exchanging what is rightly His, His honor and glory. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among them, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
It's not sexual immorality that will lead any culture to collapse or being taken over first. It is exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving idols, even the idol of ourselves. Verse 7, we're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness, a simple reminder that God calls you. Now, let me just fan this out. God calls you. God calls your children. God calls your grandchildren. God calls your church. How, how else can I expand it? To be holy and to be pure. Romans 8, 31 and 32, one of the most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. Do you want real freedom? People misquote this. Well, the truth will make you free. And then they always add this, but first it'll make you miserable. You've never heard that? But here's what God says. Here's what Jesus says. If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Then you will know the truth. You see, the truth can't set you free until you've got the truth in your heart. And, and I don't know. Maybe I've, I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe I've lost you guys in this whole thing. I hope not. I, I know that, that so many of you in this congregation and at home, are, are, you're, you're, you're struggling, you're doing battle with the, the enemy in and, and your own flesh, but there are some of you, honestly, that you ache for the freedom that, that, that Jesus is talking about there. There is a claw in your brain. Now, if you don't care anything about that, then we need to talk about your justification, whether or not you've truly come to Christ. But if you are a Christian and you have dealt with this, God's will is you being, remember last week, saturated with the Word of God. And so that you'll know some things. You'll know that your greatest freedom is not freedom from restraints. When is a kite most free to do what it was intended to do? When it's got the restraint of the string. And Satan's going to come in like, like we saw a minute ago in Romans chapter 1. He's, he wants you to make the exchange. He will distort God's truth and try to deceive you into buying what the culture is selling. But I'm telling you that as a Christian, all it will produce is suffering. And you will not maximize long-term meaning and purpose and joy and for you personally, and for our church, and for our nation, flourishing. God is long-suffering, but He will avenge. I'm seeing the seriousness of this as I've never seen it before. And so did Jesus. Anybody ever heard the name Aaron Ralston? I've used him as an illustration before. Aaron Ralston, 2003. Hiking in Utah. Ring a bell? By himself. Didn't leave a travel plan. Who is a hiker? He's a world-class mountaineer and all the rest of that. And so he's in this canyon. He's way back in the boonies. And a rock dislodges and falls on his wrist and pins it. You remember the story now? 
And for five days, he tried whatever he could. He had a, a little pocket knife, Swiss Army, and he was trying to, he dulled it, trying to get the rock chiseled out enough, and he couldn't do it. And just all five days, five days being pinned, and he thought, I'm going to die unless I do something that is totally, totally radical. You know what he did. Because he's, he saw the seriousness of it. It was life and death. Or death. And seeing the seriousness of it, was he going to die or was he going to live? Now, we're talking about the first death here. We're talking on a physical level. But life is precious. And eternal life is ever so much more. And he did the unthinkable. Thinkable. He took that dull pocket knife, cut off his hand right at the elbow. He walked out of that canyon. He went, he, he's got a story about this, a book and movie and all that, rappelled down a 65-foot face of a cliff walked, hiked seven miles to get out of this place. Are we, are we that serious? We hear the words of Jesus, if your right eye or your right hand causes you to stumble, to sin. You know, the, the context is clear. It's talking about lust. It's talking about immorality. If immorality is getting you, then you have, to, it, you have to be as serious as you would be, as Aaron Ralston was, about cutting off his own arm. And if you are not that serious, that reveals that you have not been born again. Because he says, it's better to do that than to go to hell which does not indicate that you can lose your salvation. It indicates that you never really had it. Remember, again, we're not talking just about the first death. We all are going to die unless the Lord comes back. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love it if he just came back at the end of this service? Wow, be great. You wouldn't even care about going to lunch. We're talking about the reality of the second death, okay? When you and I are born again, what happened? We have a brand new set of desires. Do we automatically know what to do? And how to do it? That's why the Great Commission is so important. You know, we, we've misread uh, the Great Commission for a long time, we think that the, the verb is go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the way we usually read it, teaching them, blah, blah, blah. No, the, the way that that's read, the verb is disciple. As you are going. That's why, you know, you're afraid that, that the Great Commission is about you going on the mission field. Maybe it is. But for right now, the Great Commission is simply as you are going, where you are going, you are discipling the people around you. And that could be a child. It could be a grandchild. It, it could be someone that you've come alongside. 
and then you teach them. To Jesus, this was very important. That's why our, our motto is that we, we want people who delight in God and declare His glory, but there's something that goes in front of that, develop. That's why this, that's why our ABF classes, that's why the, the groups that meet on Wednesday nights and outside of this to, to enable you to, to live and to walk. I'm telling you, I, I became a Christian at 11 years of age, and I've wrestled with, because of the struggle between 11 and 21, I've wrestled with what was my spiritual condition. But I can go back, and I remember as a sixth grader walking home from Leverett Elementary School with a friend who was a neighbor across the street, and it was right after I had been saved. I mean, I'm, I grew up in a Baptist church, so that was my terminology. I got saved, and I did. It was a transformation. I had new desires. And I, re I remember trying to tell Ronnie Gibson what had happened to me and, needy, and needed to happen to him. And, and I just hemmed and hawed, and I said, well, I was feeling bad, and I felt this weight. And did anybody else have that? Since I just felt this incredible weight, and I, the preacher gave the invitation, and I knew I had to trust in Christ, and I did. I didn't know, the, I, and I was just stumbling around, and, and I could tell that Ronnie was, well, I believe in God. And I, I've never been more frustrated. Now, I, I don't know, but I thought this past week, what if there had been a man that had seen this little skinny 11-year-old guy that you would think wouldn't count for nothing. I mean, really. You look at my pictures when I was 11. All nose and teeth. I, w I was just, I was a mess. Skinny, just skinny. And, you know, all the rest of that. This little guy, he's not going to amount to think. But what if a guy had come along and said, Hey, Marty, what's going on in your mind since you received Christ? Let's talk about that. Let's go get a Coke, an original Coke, old enough for that, an original Coke out of the little bottle. Let's talk about that. You know what it meant? Let me share with you what happened. Let me come alongside you. I, I, I don't know, but maybe that would have caused me to not have to go through the things that I went through from 11 to 21. I don't know. And thank God, by His providence, He uses everything, okay? He uses it all. But I, I just want to give you, like Paul does, a reminder. That he's called us, and sometimes we have to come alongside, and we have to get and give some help. Now, let's get to number eight. In the, uh, verse eight, God Himself gives you not only the calling to purity, but also the power. I love the way He ends. Look at this, who gives you His Holy Spirit. He hasn't just called you. You've realized the seriousness. You want to honor the Lord. Again, whether you're 14 or 84. And if you're truly born again, if you're not, you, you, this stuff is just, what in the world is this guy talking about? But if you really are born again, you will want to please God and grow in holiness, especially in pursuing purity. 
And when you understand, as we've talked about today, the seriousness of this, and, and it, it, it just acts as a motivation, not out of fear. You know you're not going to hell, but this is serious with God. You will be moved to deal radically with the de desires of the flesh, images, situations. I've heard Christians say this. I'm going I'm to interpret. I don't want to be unkind, and you can come correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. For a Christian, I can't stop. Either means I just don't want to. Or it means, that, that's, that's, that's either a, a Christian who has not been reading his Bible or the mark of a non-Christian, or it means I, I can't. I can't stop. I, I want to with all of my heart. I am agonizing in this fight. I want to stop. When I, but it seems like when I try, I fail. It's not automatic. There will be a battle that will ensue. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other because the flesh and all of the world, the devil, they're all stacked against you to do what you don't want to do. I'm going to give you two keys that go right out of this scripture. Two keys, and they're really simple. Then we're done, all right? You with me? Shake the cobwebs out. Okay, two keys, then we're done. Promise. All right, first key. Go back to verse 5. What does it say? We, we don't control our body. It, it says, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Here's the first key that we know God. Just write that down. Know God. No God. In order for you to know God, you have to come into a relationship with Him through realizing your sin, repenting, and turning away from your sin and turning by faith to Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't become like idols. Worship God. Know God. Worship Him. If you worship idols, guess what? The Bible says you'll become like them. That's a scary thought. No. Look to God. I love this. Where the Spirit of the, where the Lord, uh, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so that leads me to the second key: trust in the Holy Spirit. Know God. This now there are other things, but right here in this passage, here's what Paul is saying: Know God and trust in the Holy Spirit who lives in you, to give you exactly what you need for victory. He's going to give you exactly what you need. He helps you in your weakness. Are you weak in this area? The Bible says the Spirit will help you in this weakness. You don't know how to pray. He does. He'll pray for you. Boy, God praying for you. Here's a second thing. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Living by the flesh is not going to cut it if you live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. You will put to death the deeds of of the body. 
And oh, by the way, you will live. And then the last one, Romans 6, 11. I, I think of all of the things that were ever shared with me, this could be one of the most helpful. Consider, reckon, King James says, reckon yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When that temptation comes to you, you, you look at what the Bible says about your flesh right now. You're a dead man. You, you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Consider yourselves dead to sin. If I don't want to be gross, but if, if there's a dead person laying right here and I walk up to that dead person and tempt that dead person with something, how is that dead person going to respond? He's not. Why? Because he's dead. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. I have used this so often, and, and, and I, I don't know that this is a particular thing with guys. I think girls do this too. I mentioned this last week with Job 31.1. You remember that? Make a covenant with your eyes. I can't tell you how many times I've used Romans 6.11 when my eyes have been tempted. Now, look, you can't help it. Gaze, that's a whole other thing. Temptation's there, the flesh, maybe it's weak. Hey, wait a minute. I'm dead to that. Turn away, but I'm alive to God in Christ. And I start thinking about the things of God and the benefits of walking in purity. Use this message as you will. Use it as a diagnosis. If there is a person here today without Christ, I hope some of the things that I've shared with you have awakened you to run from your sin to Jesus. His blood on the cross is sufficient to save, and He will cancel the penalty of your sin. And then for the rest of your life, He will give you the power. He will break the other power of the sin that He has canceled. And if you're a Christian, Use this. Do a diagnosis of your own life. Run to Christ. Find somebody to come alongside to help them in their walk with the Lord. Father, this is a, uh, an offering to you. All that we do is an offering to you. Singing, uh, praying, preaching, receiving, uh, dialoguing, all of this in Christ is a gift to you, and it's for you. Uh, so, Lord, take it and use it as you will. Help people remember the things, the, the scriptures perhaps, the individual scriptures that they need so that your Holy Spirit can do your work as only you can do. So that the glory would never be to man but always to you, O God, who gives us all things. We thank you and we praise you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.